you know, it goes back to what I said before. If we can accept that everybody parents differently, but look, my kids are happy. I parent very differently to a lot of people, but my kids are happy and healthy and wicked fun. And will they have their own issues? Of course they will. But, you know, so will your kids and so will everybody's kids because nobody, like you said before, we all bring some sort of trauma, whether that's capital T trauma or little t trauma to our relationships in later life. Nobody gets out of childhood trauma-free, scar-free, Welcome to season four of the Tapping Into podcast. This is a podcast where we explore different spiritual, natural and alternative ways to heal our lives. My goal is to help support you in your journey, whatever stage that may be. In this season, we're digging a bit deeper into the emotions and traumas that often kickstart or accelerate our healing journey. We discuss shame, sex, death, burnout, Ayurveda, breathwork, flower essences, rituals and embodiment, all with a bit of science to back it up at the end. I really hope you enjoy this season. Welcome to today's episode of Tapping Into. I hope you're enjoying this season so far. In today's episode, I talk to mom blogger and influencer Kat Sims, otherwise known as Not So Smug Now on Instagram. We explore marriage as our topic today, what it really is versus what you think it's going to be, how becoming parents can really throw a curveball into marriage, how underprepared we are for both parenthood and marriage, the impact of birth trauma on those early years sobriety and the influence of alcohol that it had on Kat's marriage, the road to therapy and recovery, and how vulnerability and communication is the key to navigating it all. Kat brings her unique charm and humour to this conversation, making me laugh out loud many times, and I think I'll forever remember her now as the guest who sucked snot out of her kid's nose. You've got to listen to the end of the episode for that one. Kat's book, The First Time You Smiled, or Was It Just Wind? A Baby Record Journal with Attitude is available now on Amazon and in all good bookstores. So if you're not following her already, you can find her on Instagram at NotSoSmugNow or over on her blog, NotSoSmugNow.com. Enjoy this chat and do jump into my DMs. Let me know what you found interesting. Did you have any light bulb moments? And what might you start doing as a result of this conversation? enjoy. So welcome Kat to the Tapping Into podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's taken us a few attempts to get here but I'm really pleased we've made it work. Yeah exactly all be worth it in the end and this season I am focusing on experiences that kind of break us but also then lead to shaping us and I think marriage is one of those things. (laughs) Uh, yeah, certainly my marriage was for a minute there. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that. And I think that's why you are so relatable is because you actually share the hard shit that so many people sometimes aren't even aware of themselves and then don't even talk about or talk with within their marriage or let alone talk to other people about. Well, I think it's really interesting because I think that so much about marriage and relationships between partners has all the a lot of the negative stuff has been hyper normalized like you know it's really interesting when i when i read about love island and all of these um articles saying love island's so misogynistic and this that and the other and it's it's not right and blah 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 and i think hang on a minute love island hasn't invented this And Love Island isn't normalizing this. We have normalized this. Love Island shining a spotlight on it. And when we get to see those dynamics from outside the trees looking in, so to speak, outside the woods looking in, it's really clear to us when that negative, when those negative dynamics are happening. But when we're in it, we don't, you know, we do those things and we receive those things. And it's so normalised, we don't even notice it's happening. So it's not Love Island's fault. Actually, I think Love Island is doing us a favour because it's going, hang on a minute, 
This is normalized behavior that we accept on a daily basis, day in, day out. But when we see it in this context, we're shocked and we should be shocked and we should be changing, you know? We have to stop villainizing. Like, let's take Luca or let's take Adam Collard from the first when he got vilified for being for gaslighting. He was gaslighting. Luca has been bullying, but I don't think either of them did it with this malicious, malevolent, conscious nastiness in them as much as they did it and they genuinely thought that was how they win at arguments or that's how they get their point across. It doesn't make it right. But I think rather than villainizing these people, we should be using this to, to educate and to say, look, I get it. You've seen this behavior. You've learned it. You're using it. But in reality, this is what's actually happening. So can we try a different way? You know, it's, I think we're so quick to jump on this kind of bandwagon of hate for these people we can tell when people we can tell when people are like genuine sociopaths or psychopaths and genuinely have no empathy and just want to manipulate and hurt people the majority of people aren't that the majority of people have just got really have learned really bad habits because that's what they've seen and when we see it on Love Island that's a great opportunity rather than for like charities to go he should be kicked off actually can those charities say, let's take this experience, let's take this and show people how we can learn from this to behave better? Because everybody's, everybody has the ability to gaslight every now and again. Everybody has the ability to say a nasty thing every now and again. None of us are perfect, you know? So I think that that's kind of, not that this is much about marriage, but it is about relationships. And I suppose it's something that I learned in, in therapy was, I can spend and waste an awful lot of time worrying and judging and analyzing what Jimmy's done in any kind of transaction. But actually the only way I'm gonna get out of it is if I analyze and think about what I've done. And that doesn't necessarily mean blame. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. It just means how have I contributed in this? How have I participated in this dynamic? And being able to assess your own behavior means that you can move forward totally like what you are describing there with the love island characters and with um ourselves and in every way is that we all have trauma we're all bringing pain to the table on some level and these characters in a in a, a glass box where we're all kind of watching and throwing stones each single one of those is a very damaged and hurt individual for whatever reason before even coming to that position um, and I think what we're all doing too in our relationships is bringing together our childhood of pain a childhood of trauma whatever we have inherited and absorbed from our family genetics and our family lines our limiting beliefs and then we we have this love romance and this you know passion and excitement and we follow the naturally led social pathway towards a marriage and then we get into marriage and then life starts to happen the passion subsides the love you know is there but can ebb and flow and our wounding appears and then what <laughs> what do we do then well, I think this is the thing. And I think we've been sold this myth of what marriage and relationships is, right? We've been sold through decades of advertising, television and movies that it's about this romance and it's about them knowing you inside out, being able to read your mind, knowing when you need a hug, you know, all of this stuff, treating you, surprising you, thinking of you all the time you know, hot, passionate sex on the kitchen counters as soon as the kids have gone to bed. And it's all bollocks. Like it's, it's all rubbish. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are moments of that at the beginning, I'm sure. And that's great. Yeah. But I think we've been sold this idea that once that's gone, then the relationship has, is somehow not as good. Mm -hmm. And actually it's because a lot of that stuff that we experience at the beginning is really surface. Right. It's, and it's nice and it's lovely and it's exciting, but we don't really know each other. It's very much surface and it takes, it's taken Jimmy and I 
years to get to a full understanding of each other. Like, and I would say that we are there now. I mean, I say it took years, took years and then a ton of therapy as well. Mm. But I would say that we are there now. And, you know, we don't have hot rip off your clothes sex on the kitchen counters. Um, but the love I feel for that man as my person and as the person I know I can always rely on is that's invaluable. I don't think I've ever had anybody who I know has always got my back and who tries at all times to keep me in mind. And that is, you know, that was the one thing our therapist said to us that was such a game changer for me. And I was talking about how he was leaving shit on the counter and not putting it in the dishwasher. Like he's leaving it right on the counter above it and not putting it in. Yeah. He was like, the thing is, Kat, is you, you just don't feel kept in mind. And I was like, absolutely, that's how it is. And that sentence, feeling kept in mind, gave was so transformative because rather than me saying, you never think about me, which essentially means the same thing, I didn't feel kept in mind is not accusatory, it's not defensive, it's not attacking. And yet it very clearly says, I feel like he didn't think about me then. Because that's essentially what it all boils down to do I feel kept in mind by this man you know or this woman mm. are they I don't mind that they're late home have they thought about me have they called me and let me know you know it's those kind of things and I think now being able to say to Jimmy and for him to be able to say to me I didn't feel very kept in mind there has just made that conversation so easy wow and um, was that you know, obviously, what what were the cracks then that drove you to to therapy? Because obviously, that's one aspect of of your relationship dynamic. I think, you know, we really underestimate it. I mean, we we were so naive. You know, I think we were naive when we walked down the aisle. We were operating under this Hollywood myth of relationships. We were naive when we had kids, and we fully. I wouldn't even say we underestimated because I don't even think we considered the impact having children would have on our relationship. Um, you know, it didn't help that I had a really traumatic birth. It didn't help that I had postnatal depression. It didn't help that Jimmy was on tour for seven months in the first year. Mm. But all of that would have been manageable if we had learned to communicate by saying exactly what we wanted to say rather than what we actually said. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. rather than me shouting and screaming at him for never being there and feeling like, you know, I was left on my own. What I really need to say is I am really struggling and I miss you and this is really hard, but my defensiveness wouldn't allow me, I couldn't allow myself to be that vulnerable. And it just meant that we built up so many resentments mm -hmm. throughout that year that a lot of it, you know, Billy was in the middle of a lot, not in terms of her actual consciousness, but in terms of, you know, we'd almost like compete over who was the better parent, like, or I'd feel slammed all the time for not being a good enough parent. And it was just so toxic in a very quiet way, because both of us are nice people, but between us, we were in a situation that we just couldn't get out of, and it was so toxic. And I think after about four years, Every time he walked into a room, I couldn't bear to be around him. That resentment, I hadn't dealt with it. You know, I was told once that the only thing you can do with a resentment, there's only two things you can do. You can forgive or apologise. That's it. And I hadn't dealt with any of those resentments. And we were in therapy and it, we had this light bulb moment where we realised that it all came down to this first year of having a baby. And... I was just able to let go of so much and he was able to let go of so much. And we realized that we sort of wanted it to be a certain, both of us had wanted the same thing, but we just didn't, neither of us had the capacity to do it. Jimmy had to work, he had to be away. My mental health meant that I was really limited in terms of being the mum and the wife that I wanted to be. And, you know, when we realized that we could forgive each other, and that was really, really important because I just got to a point where I was like, I'm done, I'm out, I can't do this every time you walk into a room. I want to, I, the, the rage was just uncontrollable. And I was like, this isn't how it should be. Um, 
And so I said, I think we should separate. And he said, let's just try therapy one more time. And I was like, oh. But I, then I realised that, you know, at the end of the day, I wanted to be able, whether we divorced or not, I wanted to be able to look my kids in the eye and say, you know, we tried everything we could. And if I didn't do that one last therapy, then I wouldn't have been able to say that. So I was like, okay, fine. And thank God I did, because that was such a game changer for us. Wow. Um, when you were talking there, the the not being kept in mind, um, which I think was is more of a recent kind of revelation, I think goes back to that time when you were alone and you felt abandoned. Would you agree that that was like the root of that thought process? Yeah. And, and you know, my part in that was not saying that, you know, rather than saying I feel abandoned and I feel isolated and I feel alone and I'm really struggling. I was like, you're away all the time. You're not helping me. You're not doing this. And, and what I've learned is that for us to have constructive conversations, I have to forget about what he's doing and I have to go, I'm feeling this you know it doesn't it, this is how I'm feeling and it's, it's your interpretation of, of the yeah. experience isn't it yeah and also it, it it requires you to be vulnerable because it requires you to admit that you're struggling with or you've been hurt or something actually bothered you you know when you were younger we're like oh, I'm not bothered and actually we are really bothered and it's okay for us to say that but we have to be honest about what we're feeling because I never think that anger is is Anger is never a first emotion, right? Anger is always a result of something else. It's a result of a resentment or hurt or a betrayal or something like that. It's not really a true emotion in itself. And so once we get that resentment, it's like, well, I could get really, really angry about it. That's one choice. Or I could take a minute and think about why I'm feeling resentful. Why has that triggered me? Why do I want to react like that? And then I can go and talk about that stuff and cut out the anger bit because that's just exhausting. Uh, and it does get toxic after a while. You know, I know if I've been there and you just, it takes a lot to come back from that. And how did you get to a place where you were comfortable with vulnerability? And like, was that out of necessity, do you think? Yeah, so... <sighs> We'd done couples therapy before and I think I always say that I was cheating at it at that point because my husband is very good at being vulnerable and owning. He's too good. He's quite codependent, actually. And I used to take the piss. I mean, I used not take the piss out of him being codependent, but in terms of what I could get away with, I'll be honest, I held my hands up. Like I just used to let him take all the blame in therapy. I was like, see, this is his problem. This is what he does. He's even admitting it himself. And I was not prepared to be vulnerable. I was not prepared to look at myself. I was very defensive and then when we went in the second time I was like okay if this is going to work and we are going to save our marriage I'm going to have to approach this slightly differently because it's not all Jimmy's fault mm -hmm. um I'd like to say I came to that all by myself but actually the therapist perhaps suggested it and then you know I warmed up a bit but it, you know it's not easy for me to be vulnerable no you know it really isn't and it's a survival thing it's not it's not a malicious thing and you don't even know that you do it like a lot of the time you don't even know that you're doing it you don't even know that you're holding up that wall all you know is that you feel terrified and you feel unsafe and that doesn't feel comfortable and so you kick back against it but once what I realized is once you are vulnerable once and you see the results it gets easier to be vulnerable again because you know, you have to trust that person you're being vulnerable with. I trust Jimmy implicitly. I can tell him anything and everything. And we rarely get into a very attacking, defensive fight anymore because mm -hmm. of it. But it's like a muscle. And I had to learn to stop using the reactive muscle and to start using the vulnerability muscle. And the more I did that, the stronger that muscle became and slowly the other one atrophied and slowly I was able to to revert to that more naturally but I still don't get it right all the time you know mm. I'm not gonna lie and say I didn't you know storm off in Marylebone the other day in tears because we had a fight like that's legit what happened but rather than that lasting for two weeks and ending in divorce it was like 20 minutes and we figured it out and I came to my senses and so did he he was in the wrong by the way that's fine we don't need to talk about it but um but you know it's it's 
it's meant not that we don't fight, but that they're not toxic anymore. Mm. That you mentioned feeling unsafe. And, you know, I think that's key to so many emotions, you know, um, the the parasympathetic nervous system are, you know, the way we react to things, the defensiveness, the closed protectiveness that we carry. And just thinking about the birth that you had, you know, because and I'm relating this to a lot of the women that I work with, which is uh, often birth comes up, is because we are the most vulnerable we will ever be when our legs are spread and there's a baby trying to come out of our body and we are giving our faith to the people in the room to support us through that process. I don't think that is highlighted enough either. Like I think that we are almost, and I don't, I haven't really thought this through, so it might come out wrong, but I think in some ways we're almost over empowered when it comes to birth. And we sometimes are like, you can do this, you can take control, you can be, you can have the birth that you want and you can do all of this stuff. And actually, I think that sets us up for these expectations that, you know, are just unrealistic. The difference between my first and second birth was night and day. Like my first birth, I was like, mm. under uh, operating under this type A, if I prepare, I'll be successful. You know, so that meant a four page birth plan, color coded and laminated. You can only imagine <laughs> what the midwives thought of that. They had, I'm sure they like had a really good laugh about that. Um, and, you know, that was like, well, this is all I need to do because everybody's always told me that if I'm prepared, then I'll be successful. And of course, mm. I, that wasn't the case at all. It was horrendous. And then the second time I was like, well, I mean, there's nothing I can do. Well, I'm going to hypnobirth it. And they said one thing to me in hypnobirth it, and they said a lot of things, but this one thing was like the nugget that stood out. And they were like, basically your uterus is a muscle and it needs like every muscle, it needs oxygenated blood to work effectively. And if you're calm, your brain will send all of that oxygenated blood to your uterus. But if you're not calm, you'll start creating adrenaline and you're going to fight or flight and all of that oxygenated blood will go to your limbs, your brain for that kind of escape reaction, which means that your uterus still has to give birth, but it's not going to have the resources, resources it needs to do it. So it's going to be slower, longer and more painful. And I was like, well, that's science. And it blew my mind. And I was like, if only any, if that's all I needed to hear. So then from that, so the second mm. time, as soon as I went into labor, I was like, right, headphones in. I'm not doing anything. We had a water birth at home. Uh, so, you know, and I, or Jimmy already knew he was in charge. I just lay on the sofa, closed my eyes, just was like, whatever will be, will be. Listened, breathed, got in the pool, gave birth in two hours, not even a, a paracetamol, you know, and it was, and it was a completely different experience because of my mindset. I yeah. just let it go. I couldn't control it. What was going to happen was going to happen. I didn't think about the worst case scenario. I didn't think about the best case scenario. I just took it a minute at a time. And that's it. You were creating the environment to feel safe. Mm. You felt safe in that yeah. environment. And therefore you didn't feel as vulnerable. Yeah. You know, and I think this vulnerability, the the impact that certain people have in those situations. I worked with people who years later still remember a one liner from a midwife that said something that they then interpreted as I'm a bad mother. Oh, my God, I've forgotten the cardigan. How could I have forgotten the cardigan? I'm the worst mother in the world. And then five years later, they're freaking out about the kids going out without yeah. coats on because they are they, because of being in the most vulnerable position, anything anyone says, yeah, uh, it's wounding, absolute wounding. So this vulnerability in in marriage and the vulnerability that women in particular go through with birth can be very traumatic and that can leave an imprint, which obviously had done mm. for you and created that postpartum well, experience. Well, because vulnerability is not celebrated, right? It's like, we're not, especially as mothers, you're not really allowed to be vulnerable. You're not allowed to have faults or flaws. You know, mm. you're supposed to just get on with it and be grateful and, and <laughs> you know, bring up wonderful children because you spend 24 hours a day doing macrame with them or 
macrame or whatever it's called, I don't know, and teaching them Mandarin. It's like, hang on a minute. I don't have the capacity for that. I don't have the capacity to be that parent that's constantly providing entertainment and engagement for my children. And I don't think you need to be. I don't think that you do. Yeah. I think that over engagement causes its own set of problems. Um, and I think, you know, we need to be, we need to allow mums and parents to be more hands off and not have that equate bad parenting because I had a similar thing you know when the first night of having I was in the hospital and uh the first night she wouldn't stop crying she would not stop crying and it was like two in the morning and I ran to the midwife's station and I was like she won't stop crying and the midwife went well have you fed her and I hadn't because it hadn't occurred to me <laughs> because I had been through 38 hours of labor I hadn't slept for two nights and then I'd just given birth in the most horrific way. And I, it didn't occur to me that I needed to feed her regularly. And as stupid as that mm-hmm. sounds, it didn't occur to me. No. But she made me feel so small that I was like, I'm never asking you anything again. And, you know, and I just went, and in fact, interestingly, feeding then became a real point of contention for me in the, especially in the early things, breastfeeding, I found incredibly difficult, you know, and so, you're right you are we are so open to trauma being inflicted on us when we're going through that as women um that I think that kind of mental health support throughout pregnancy is what's really needed if somebody had said look you're going to feel so vulnerable and you're going to feel really unsafe Mm -hmm. especially if you're in hospital and I think hospital births can be wonderful mine wasn't largely because of the way I approached it if I'm if I'm honest um you know, and it's okay to feel scared. Don't take anything personal. You know, if we had that conversation, then maybe that would be helpful, you know, but I do think sometimes we're a bit over-empowered, like you've got this, your birth, your body is built to do this and it's everything your baby needs, don't worry. And it's like, well, actually, but you're not wrong, but that's not all that helpful. Like my mom on day two or three, had the baby blues, but the way it was approached, I believe my grandmother went in and saw my mum crying and just snatched me off her. This, so this is her her mother in law, um, and basically was like, "Oh, I'll I'll deal with her. Or I'll tell. I'll sort her out. You know, you, there's something wrong with you. You need to sort yourself out. I'll sort the baby out." Um, and my mum had seven years postnatal yeah. depression yeah. after that because. She was never told that was normal. Day three, you're going to have a hormone surge. And, you know, the reaction to how she was emotional in a household where she, her mother wasn't there. Her mother died when she was seven. And so that had an impact on me, you know, as a mother with a, with postnatal depression um, for that long. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge. And then to put a partner in the mix, where you're you're navigating your own traumas specifically if you've especially if you've had a birth trauma or postnatal um issue or psychosis or whatever and then a partner with his own stuff and his own traumas and and um and uh stress responses you know what i mean like he he could be the people pleaser or you could be the people pleaser or you know he one could be the the narcissist um and then you're trying to like navigate marriage with all this yeah and it's it's not easy and again that's you know nobody says this is going to impact your relationship we so sugarcoat everything when you add a new person into your relationship of course it's going to need some sort of transitional period you're going to need to be guided through that you're going to have to accept that you're going to need to be gentle with each other that things are going to feel very difficult and that you need to focus on communicating effectively because that was where we fell down we weren't talking about what was really bothering us we were playing this facade about being a happy family when underneath we were fucking struggling like you wouldn't believe and so but we didn't feel that we could have that conversation either because it wasn't normalized and it wasn't okay to say that it was really hard. We were, you know, supposed to be that this was supposed to be the happiest time of our life. And it was hands down the worst time of both of our lives. And that's quite normal for 
for couples to find that transition. I mean, we talk about how hard it is to have a puppy all the time. People are like, oh my God, get, if you don't get a puppy, it's the worst thing in the world. So hard. It's, oh my God, it's awful. You'll regret it. You'll hate it. It's like six months of hell. And you're like, okay, great. I'm still going to get a puppy, but at least I know it's going to be shit. Nobody openly goes, listen, don't get a baby. It's fucking shit for two years. Like, honestly, God, you won't sleep. You won't have sex. You don't have any money. You won't have any time. You know, you'll, you won't see your friends. It's horrendous. Don't do it. Nobody says that. And if you do say that, people are like, oh, stop scaring people. It's like, well, hang on a minute. You know, worst case scenario, you get a puppy, it doesn't work out. It's not great, but you can rehome it. You don't have that option with a kid. I mean, that's generally frowned upon. So let's take, let's be honest about the, the impact this has. And it's not going to stop people doing it. People are still going to have babies, but they might just be a little bit more prepared. Yes, 100%. And I, I noticed that you, on your social media, for years, in fact, you've been open about this and you've been trying to create these conversations. And I think that's why people engage with you and and respond so well to your content. It's because they're like, fuck yes, she's saying what I feel. Well, and that, you know, I started the blog in 2014. So that was July 2014. So Billy had been born in November of 2013. So she wasn't quite a year old. Mm. So I was in the deepest, darkest depths of not feeling great um and I'd always written I'd always been a writer that was my thing and so I was like well I'll just write this blog and I posted it on Facebook and I think it was like you know I talked about where you just want to put them out by the bins and it's really hard and this that and the other and it had such a massive response I don't even think I'd fully set up not so smug now I think it was just under my usual blog that I thought oh hang on a minute there's something here and there just wasn't that many people doing the same thing at that point there was still a very yeah. aspirational this is how you make organic snacks type vibe and I was like I can't even make my bed <laughs> like let's be honest um and so when I realized that there was that audience you know there was a couple of other people doing it as well I know that Steph don't buy her flowers she was very yeah. very honest from the start as well and she still is you know we were having a very sort of a similar message but there wasn't a lot of us around and I think that that just really resonates. And I think it still resonates because I do think it's better now. I think we are more open about parenting and motherhood, but that if you are not actively seeking out real life parents on social media, you will still find yourself in the corner of aspirational parenting and, and parenting experts. They're not, so many of these people are not parenting experts. They're just people that have had kids and now think that they're an expert. I would never, ever dare to call myself an expert on parenting at any point in my entire life, because if I get 50% of things right during the day, I'm okay with that. But the reality is mm. I'm only an expert in my own kids. And even then that expertise is limited. I don't know about your life. I don't know about your <laughs> income. I don't know about the time you've got. I don't know about how hard it was for you to have children or whether you're married or divorced, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, gentle parenting is the only way that you should do it. Or, you know, I'm not going to say, like, uh, I use gentle parenting until I don't use gentle parenting. You know, it's like, until you lose your shit, shit, like everyone else. That's fine. But like, I find this, yeah. this slew of parenting experts, you don't have any qualifications apart from the fact they've hoofed children out of their love tunnel telling you how you should entertain your children how you should parent your children well no I'm very willing mm. to watch how you do it that's fine but don't be telling me that this is what gentle parenting is and this is what I should try because you don't know me you don't know my kids you don't know my situation you don't know my time of the month you don't know where I am in my fucking cycle that affects my parenting in a very big way and so mm. Let's just let people parent in the way that they need to parent. Obviously, there are times when we need to step in, but generally the majority of people are just figuring it out on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know about you, I don't parent the same way today as I did yesterday. I was really tired yesterday, so they watched a lot of television. Today, 
I'm working really hard. So Jimmy's got them, but I'll do all the, you know, it's like, we just don't, we just need to let everybody parent. Every day is different. My capacity to deal with bullshit is different every day. Their capacity to deal with everything else is different every day. So we just figure it out. You know, sometimes gentle parenting works. Sometimes attachment parenting is what we need. Sometimes helicopter parenting is what we need. Sometimes actually, do you know what? I don't even care what the label is. I do what we do and we survive it and we do the best with the information we've got at the time. And that is the only way to parent, just keep trying to make the next right choice. You're not always going to do it. You're going to mess up and that's okay. Um, but, you know, these labels they put on parenting and it's just mm. as if you can only be one thing or the other. You know, it's like, well, yeah, sometimes I'm all over my kids. Sometimes I can't wait to pack a bag and leave them. I'm an EFT tapping practitioner and trainer and I work with women all over the world helping them truly let go so they can shape their own future free of the conditioning and shackles of the past. I've created a tapping into motherhood membership and community where we meet monthly to tap on emotions and issues that are coming up for us. We have monthly full moon meditations with guest host Kelly Day. We enjoy guest speakers and I create a tapping or meditation for the month too. As well as that, you have access to a library of over 100 tapping videos, meditations, resources, courses, and more. And right now the doors are open for just a short period of time. So check out www.tappingformums.com forward slash join dash membership for all the details. And if the doors are closed when you visit, you can join a waitlist. On my website, you can also take my new motherhood self-care toolkit quiz to help you identify which part of your life needs a bit of extra self-care right now. Is it your mind, your emotions, your body or your soul? And if you have any questions, do email me sarah at tappingformoms.com. To me, you are um, addressing this mom guilt culture, right? This, I see it all the time as well, this uh, this badge of honor to hold mum guilt. And me personally, I have a zero guilt policy. I try and identify what caused me to feel guilt. I learn from it and then I move on. I lose it because guilt is a wasted energy for me. So what do we do like with this culture of mum guilt? How can we start to break it down? Well, you know, first of all, I think it's a really useful tool for the patriarchy to kind of keep us all quite controlled but I think as women we have to stop we have to stop weaponizing it within our own circles you know there's so much competition especially in parenting you know go to a play group somebody's there's always that really passag like competition that I am really bad at resisting. Jimmy's so good at it. He's like, oh, I just don't let it bother me. I'm like, no, it really bothered me. And she was like saying this and that made me. So I have to work through that myself because I know that's me. But I think we have to stop this, you know, upholding this idea of what motherhood and parenthood is. And I think if we accept that, you know, it goes back to what I said before, if we can accept that everybody parents differently, but look, my kids are happy, I parent very differently to a lot of people, but my kids are happy and healthy and wicked fun. And will they have their own issues? Of course they will. But you know, so will your kids and so will everybody's kids because nobody, like you said before, we all bring some sort of trauma, whether that's capital T trauma or little t trauma to our relationships in later life. Nobody gets out of childhood trauma-free, scar-free, it's just not possible because you can't control everything. You can't control what your head teacher will say to your kids at school. Maybe that's the thing that sets them off. You know, so let's just accept that we're all doing our best. And just because I might work five, you know, five days a week in an office doesn't mean I'm any less of a parent or that I'm doing any less of a good job because this is our situation. We've built it up this way and this works for us, you know, Am I aware of the pitfalls that might cause? Of course I am. So I'm going to work on that. But, you know, none of us can provide the perfect childhood. We just can't. Yeah, I always say that um, 
to my clients is like just accept that you're going to have to fund or be part of some kind of therapy in the future for your child and move on and that's not a bad thing what what is a bad thing is that so many people aren't in therapy actually in a, a lot you know it's it's just again and I work talk a lot about this the stigma of therapy and the stigma of men especially especially talking about couples therapy there's I get so many messages from women saying I really want to do therapy but my husband just won't go he thinks it's like a sign that we're going to get divorced or that you know we're just talking about our problems with a stranger all of this stuff and again that's that's an unwillingness to be vulnerable it's an unwillingness to address your part in any given situation and you know that's really that really saddens me because you know, it's the therapy, both individual and couple, is the is the best thing I have ever done. And I would not be where I am today mentally or even career-wise or anything if I hadn't done that. Yeah, I mean, it's transformative. And there's so many different types of therapies, isn't there? That, that you know, as, as long as I suppose you're getting support from somewhere, somewhere else, somebody else, we're not experts in everything. You know, we can't be. We need support nutritionally, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. Like, we just don't have that information or the capacity to read all the books. Well, and even if you are an expert in one of those things, and I know not everybody can afford therapy, and I understand that, and it's like, it's that the, the access to therapy definitely needs to change. But even if you are an expert in that, chances are you're not great at doing that for yourself because you can't see the wood for the trees. Like you just can't, you can't be objective. And what I got from therapy was a highly analytical and objective view that wasn't designed, didn't come with any motivational bias. It wasn't designed to hurt me or make me feel something or make me change my mind or do anything. It was just like, well, how about if you looked at it like this? And I was like, oh yeah, it's, you know, all right, I will do, you know, and, and that was essential because it just took, you can talk to friends and family and people like that, but there's always the underlying worry that there's some motivation in it or that they are connected in some way. Whereas with a therapist, it's the objectivity that is so enlightening, you know, having a stranger look at you and, and be able to see, be able to verbalize what you're feeling is like, oh, that's what it is yeah amazing um i wanted to touch on your journey with alcohol because i know therapy's obviously played a big role in supporting you through that how what was the role alcohol was playing in those early years like was that actually adding to the lack of communication and the disconnection between yourself and jimmy i would say that i mean i've always drank alcoholically in that I never just had one glass of wine, you know, and my family have always drank to get drunk. That was how I saw drink. It's how we showed our love. You know, we get pissed on Sunday lunch times and, and that was kind of the norm. And so it, that was always in my genes. I drank to get drunk. And for, for a long time, that was fine. I, you know, it, it wasn't fine, but it didn't have any serious consequences. It was quite a lot of fun and it was fine. But then, certainly after well certainly before actually you know there were a couple of occasions before I was married where I got myself into very dangerous situations but again a lot of that's very normalized um and then after I was married and I had both Billy for the first and I had Billy that first year was really bad for me and it wasn't uh so much that I was I wasn't I never drank in the morning I never hid booze around the house but when I started drinking in the evening I didn't really stop and then I would take find any opportunity to binge drink with friends you know so that was really difficult for Jimmy he doesn't really drink well he didn't really drink at the time now he's not he doesn't drink at all and hasn't done for years um yeah. and so that certainly put a wedge between us but it also meant that I was extra on the defensive and extra, you know, putting across the tough guy. This isn't, you know, because I didn't want to have to deal with that particular issue. 
I didn't want to be exposed. And actually after that first year, it got a bit better and then it got bad again. And then it got, and then the pandemic, it really cemented this, this kind of very unhealthy relationship with booze and the consequences were getting worse and worse. And I was pushing the boundaries of what I would deem acceptable and not acceptable. You know, it, it was starting to turn into drug use as well. And I just thought this is not going to end. You know, you don't, when you're, addi- when you're an addict, you don't have different levels of addiction. You know, some addicts don't get to a certain point and go, oh, this is as addicted as I'm going to get. You know, (laughs) given a free reign, every addict, no matter how slow that progression or how quick that progression is, will eventually slide into the rock bottom in the worst case scenario. And, you know, I was very lucky that I recognised where that was heading before it was before the consequences were irreversible. Um, and I'm so grateful that, you know, I've got friends who are in various 12-step programs. So I was very aware of how that worked. They've always talked quite openly about it. And so, you know, being able to go into AA and deal with that has been incredibly helpful um, for me. And it's made a huge impact on our relationship because of course I'm not, I'm not I mean I was never an aggressive I was actually quite a good fan drunk like my problem was I just didn't stop I never got Larry or fighty or anything cryy or anything like that but um I did probably get a bit aggro with my husband he probably if I ever got Aggie it was with him um but also he didn't feel safe when I started to drink he didn't feel safe and that's a very difficult dynamic to manage there's a lot of resentment that builds up and, you know, it was just, um, he just started to distance himself. You know, he wouldn't fight about it with me anymore. He didn't ask how much I drank. He just looked after himself and the kids. And, you know, that was, I thought that was great. because I was like, well, now I can drink without being hassled about it and nagged all the time. But actually it was really causing a huge divide between us. And so being able to bridge that divide and come back to that and be able to talk, you know, we went to a festival at the weekend. Jimmy would never have gone to a festival with me and the kids before because he would have been like, look, I'm just going to spend the whole time worrying about how drunk you're getting, where the kids are. It's just not fun for me. And he's like, we've had the best weekend because, you know, both nights I was like, I'll take Bo back to the tent because she's tired. Jimmy's like, this is weird. He's like, why why aren't you out chasing the buzz? I'm like, babe, there is no buzz left. Um, you know, and and so he'd stayed out and watch a bit of Groove Armada and then come back with Billy. And it was just joyful to be able to have that experience. We never would have been able to do that before. Amazing. Such um much more mindful moments as a family to have when you're not chasing that numbness or, or the yeah, party. a hundred percent. And, and I had more fun, you know, because a, yeah. on a very sort of visceral level, I didn't have the hangovers. I didn't have the anxiety or the fear or anything like that, but also I was more present. I wasn't always getting up to find another beer. I, you know, it, my focus was on, we're at the festival, let's have fun. Let's watch some music. Whereas normally it's always like, I'm going to get a drink. Where can I get a drink? I'll get another drink, shall I? Well, let's go here. Well, no, let me get a drink first, you know? And it was just so dominating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm now, what's the date today? Oh my gosh, I was eight months sober yesterday. Um, And it's been a game changer, you know, and I really drank every day and I know people are like, oh, I just, I can't, what am I, who am I if I give up booze? It, and my life is immeasurably better. And I don't know anybody who gave up alcohol and didn't go. And, and I don't know anybody who gave up alcohol and went, oh, my life has gone shit. Nobody does that. Everybody's like, my life is better. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I'm, I'll be two years in October. And <gasps> That's incredible. Yeah. And it was, it was like a flip, uh, a switch was flipped. Like, I quit my corporate job on um, Friday and on the Monday I gave up the alcohol and I because I was now doing my life purpose fulfilling job you know I was doing my tapping therapy full time 
and it was like right that's it i this is me now i'm i don't need that thing anymore and i don't want that thing anymore and my god my clarity my intuition my connection Your with sleep. people oh, sleep so oh, yeah. sleep nobody talks about that yeah. enough oh my god sober sleep is incredible it's like you're in a coma and then you wake up feeling fresh better it's i used to think that just like constantly waking up through the night was just like a thing of getting old like well this is what you have to do now you know you're old it didn't need to go for a wee or anything it was like I just didn't sleep for more than two or three hours at a time I didn't realize it was all the alcohol that I was drinking and then as soon as literally as soon as I stopped I would say within a couple of days three days maybe my sleep would just be like boom and I'd wake up at seven I'd be like what hang on the whole I've just done a solid eight hours you know that was life-changing and the time that you get back from not being hung over or not spending your hours partying or finding the next drink you know it's just such it's such a relief what was the feedback when you came out with this I remember watching your video and subsequent videos you did some follow-ups and things and I remember just thinking, I was so thrilled that your content would change as well because it's like the normalization of the mom, the drinking mom, you know, like I think now there's the drinking mom conversation can be can be opened, you know, can be like, well, actually, is that normal, you know, and, and how, did, how did that people react? I had nothing but positive reactions, honestly. I mean, a lot of people who were like, oh my God, I feel like I need to get help, you know, and, I, and I've taken loads of people to online meetings with me, loads of followers who've said they're struggling, like, let's go to this meeting. Um, so the reaction was hugely positive. Um, I didn't really have any negative chat at all. I think, you know, in terms of that wine o'clock and mum drinking thing, I've spoken about this a lot and it's, I think it's quite an unpopular opinion that I have, especially amongst sort of other addicts and alcoholics. But, you know, the majority of people actually can drink responsibly. Like the majority of people can have a glass of wine at wine o'clock, whatever that is, and they're fine. And so I have to not, just for my own benefit, I can't fall into the trap of blaming or, or like not even blaming, but even sending my focus towards wine o'clock or the way alcohol's marketed. Because honestly, as an addict, you've put me in a dark room, I'd still want a drink, you know, with, yeah. with so it's, you know, for me, I'm sure that there are, I'm sure that, that that played into it. And I'm sure that seeing that helped me normalize and justify it for myself. But at the end of the day, I had to recognize that that was still me doing that. I was still picking on that to go, I'm going to use that. They didn't make me do that. You know, that I have to, as an addict, take responsibility for whether or not I pick up a drink because no matter what happens, no matter how terrible anything gets, if I choose to pick up a drink, it is because I have chosen to pick up a drink at that moment. It's not because something's happened. It's not because I've seen an advert. It's not because of anything else. I can sit there and I can, I can make excuses, but at the end of the day, the only person that, that is responsible for whether or not I pick up a drink is me. And that's great because actually that's easy. I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm just not gonna pick up a drink. That's easy. It doesn't mean I don't have to work my ass off mentally, you know, day in, day out. And I do, I do a meeting more or less every day. I speak to my sponsor every day. You know, I'm working, I'm working the steps. I'm doing the work because what's great about the 12 steps is that it's such a, um, it's not just, you know, I, I think everybody should do the 12 steps. It's not just about addiction. Mm -hmm. It's It's been so good for helping me realize why I am the way I am, why I react the way I react, why I'm vulnerable to addiction, how I need to change and how I need to work to be better. Because, you, you know, I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. There's probably a number of reasons. But I know why I pick up drinks and that has been revelatory to me. And it's all to do with resentments. You know, it's all to do with the things that I don't let go or the things that I hold on to and the things that just live there 
subconsciously and I haven't dealt with you know the fact that I feel insecure in big rooms of people the fact that I never quite feel good enough that I was an only child and that I didn't really ever feel like I had the capacity to make connections you know all of that stuff and I can think of reasons who I blame for all of that stuff but actually it's not helpful to hold on to that it's helpful to unpack it and unpick it and go okay I get now that that's why I was feeling that way that's okay let's move on yeah and letting go is and forgiving self and forgiving others is just the most healing thing that you can do and apologizing you know because there are so many things that I even if I feel like the 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 action happened even if I feel somebody treated me badly you bet that there are so many ways I have reacted badly as well to that mm-hmm. you know and I have done terrible things when I've been drinking I have done terrible things when I haven't been drinking because I'm not perfect and and you know and I and I have been hurt and traumatized and damaged in various ways as we all have and so now I can look back on that and go I see why I did that to that person and I can forgive myself for that but I now need to apologize to that person is the most healing thing because once you learn, once you apologize and you own your shit, very rarely do you get a negative reaction to that. You know, most people, the worst thing you might get is shock. Like, uh, did you just own your shit? <laughs> yes, I did. But generally, yeah. people are so grateful that yeah. you have taken it upon you and they're shocked. And they're, Nine times out of 10, they'll come back and go, do you know what? I messed up as well. And I'm really sorry. But it takes that one, per- it takes a person to start that. And so mm. I've learned that being that person, I've learned through sobriety and through marriage counseling, actually, that being that person and being the one to assess my own behavior and my own role in any kind of situation is kind of a way of spreading a good vibe because then people trust you they start to trust you with their feelings and that is how you get those connections this is going all the way back full circle to vulnerability yeah. isn't yeah, it totally. because everything that you've learned over these this journey is actually just is to be vulnerable to be open to have have an influencer out there with a voice that isn't talking about alcohol in that normalizing way is so refreshing and good because I think you're you're thought provoking you're triggering I'm also really careful I don't want to be one of those sober people that's like you need to give up alcohol because this will be how good it is for you like you probably don't need to give up alcohol like if you think you've got a problem I sort of say to myself you know when I'm struggling there's a little voice in my head that says you're not really an alcoholic like you can probably like it's all a bit you're fine now um and then I have to remind myself that people who aren't alcoholics or don't have a problem with drinking probably don't have a voice in their head telling them mm. that they're, you know, talking to them, essentially, trying to get them to drink. Because that's what my addiction is. It's a part of my brain. It's, it's a thing in there, it's like a gremlin that is doing everything it can all the time to get me to pick up that thing that's what it wants that's all it wants and so that's why the work has to happen every day but also I don't want to scare people and I don't want to judge people because people can drink people could be drinking more than I was ever drinking but it's okay for their life isn't unmanageable they're fine It, it that's on them and so I don't want to say being sober will be better for you because it might not be I mean I'm not saying I'm not saying it might but it might not be necessary you know in an god I wish that I could enjoy drink responsibly but I can't and that's okay but if you can fine but I think sometimes help you know we can slip into being a bit evangelical and actually all I want to do is go this is how I was feeling and this is what I've learned and this is my experience um because I think otherwise people just kick back and they just they don't want to hear it you know they just don't want to be told And it's not my place to tell anybody as well. Sorry, it's not my place to tell anybody whether they have a drinking problem. And people will go, well, how much were you drinking? I'm like, well, listen, I can tell you. But if you're asking me so that you can compare your drinking to mine and then decide whether or not you've got a problem, that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, people will 
interpret what they want from your story. Yeah. And they will align or resonate or not resonate with it. And and I suppose just, just the act of sharing, the act of being vulnerable is going to help some people. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important to me in terms of the content that I create. It's, you know, there's no, there's nothing aspirational about my content. Let's be clear. Like, I mean, I, I'm trying to engage, I'm trying to like entertain mm. um, and, and relate and be relatable, but I'm not the person that you come to if you want to know what fur and ball colors you painted your kid's nursery in. That's not me. Yeah. But, you know, if you want the mum that's got the clean car with the organizers, with the bottles that are all clean and matching, it's just not me. You know, my car is about to walk itself to the to the cleaner because it's so disgusting. At one point I said, said Jimmy, I have to look at it because I'm like, I can smell maggots. I think there's maggots in there. <laughs> He's like, I think you're being dramatic. There's not maggots. But, you know, there were maggots in my food bin though. So close, mm. you know. Um, so I think... You know, it, you just can't, you can't, I just have to be open and honest about everything because I've set my stool up online. I've set myself mm-hmm. up as this person and it helps me. It keeps me accountable. It keeps me grounded. It reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing because, you know, it's easy to get swept away with kind of all the cool stuff that can come along with what I do. But actually, you know, going to Latitude this weekend was brilliant and that was work and it was a freebie and it was a gift and you know I did some paid work there as well and it's very difficult to go look at me at Latitude when I know everybody a lot of people are really struggling but I think that if you are honest and open and vulnerable in so many other ways people can forgive you that you know people can go I get it she's gone for work it's it is what it is absolutely yeah but we know that she's being honest and vulnerable about this stuff and it's not about rubbing our faces in it and stuff like that and you know, it's just, what's the point of creating content if there's nothing really real about it? Exactly, exactly. I'm conscious of your time now and I want to... Oh. Yeah, I want you to, to tell me about your latest project, something you've been birthing. I Yes, so I've got a new book out, which is called The First Time You Smiled or Was It Just Wind? It is available at various bookstores, but the place you're guaranteed to get it is Amazon. And I know everybody hates Amazon, but if you do want to support independent, well, not independent, but if you want to support authors, Amazon is the best place to buy it because it's where a lot of the charts and things are taken from and reviews and all of that. So it's really, it's actually quite good. A lot of my publishers very happy, like they want, Amazon because that's where everything's tracked and so oh, anyway yeah so it's a bit of a da, 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 but if you can buy on Amazon that'd be great also I think it's a bit cheaper on Amazon which and it will come the next day um basically it is a baby record journal so though you get to record first tooth first walk first time they crawled all the rest of it but you know first of all it's really inclusive it doesn't just assume that a man and a woman put a penis in a vagina and made a baby it allows for all the different iterations of what a family looks like um, from same sex to trans to adoption to IVF whoever and whatever you are I hope that it is something that you can use you know we've not done things like family trees for example because not everybody has a family so instead it's just your village like who are these people that are important in your and your kid's life? So we've thought really, really carefully. I really hope that we haven't sort of messed anything up. There may be stuff that's not fully relatable to everybody, but generally we've done our very best to make it as inclusive as possible. And it's not just the sweet saccharine stuff, you know, because at the end of the day, when it comes to like writing your father of the bride speech or whatever, you're not going to talk about the day they got their first tooth. <laughs> You know, you're not. You're going to talk about the day that they cut up your sheets and rubbed Charlotte Tilbury makeup in and then took the scissors to their fringe. Those are the things, those are the stories that you're going to do. So it's really about that, you know, and, and you know, the first time you had sex after having a baby. And But it's funny and it's, and there's a lot of my own kind of, I guess, normalising of parenting, especially in that first year, Um it's not really advice as much as this is kind of what I experienced, but I've tried to make it funny and relatable and as much for the parents as it will be for the kids as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they're the ones that really are the heroes of that story. Do you know what I mean? Like the kids, the protagonist, sure, but actually the heroes of that story are the parents that got them through those first five years. Yes. So 
it's as much for the kid to go, look, I did this then, but also to go, oh, you did this as well, which I think when they grow up is really important. Mm. Amazing. It's like a modern, a complete retake, isn't it, on the baby book? Yeah, because who wants just pink and blue bunny rabbits and gardens? Yes. And, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it's just awful. It's just awful. And so it's, and, and all it does is make you feel like shit because it's like, look how beautifully presented and perfect this all is. And, oh. and you're like, hang on, I've just literally leaked breast milk all over that page. Like, <laughs> That's fine. There's a page you want to keep for the future. Keep that page, yeah. I'm going to air freshen it a bit. But, <laughs> but the, there again is the vulnerability, isn't it? Because that is an open record of the most vulnerable time in your parental career. And... Um, and yeah, it's just, it's refreshing and beautiful. And it would make a fabulous gift for a new mum, wouldn't it? Yeah, 100%. Well, a new parent of any kind. And yes, true. You know, also just being able to give that to your kids when they're 18. And it's not just telling half the story. Mm. But it's telling the whole story about the things you struggled with and the things that you found difficult or the things that were brilliant, the times you nailed it. I think that's a really important tale to tell as well. You know, I think too often our kids are so centralised in our, like, narratives. We we end up playing bit parts and it's like, hang on a minute, you wouldn't be here doing any of this stuff yes. if it wasn't for all of these. And I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty, but let's be grateful because you're going to want that from your kids. So let's start this process now. Do you know what, Kat, what's coming to mind is when we have um, trauma in our childhoods, we block out the memories where we were loved, where we yeah. actually got the caregiving. And we do that as a protection mechanism so that we won't get hurt in the future. So actually a lot of adults block out those precious moments that we had with our parents. Um, and actually if we knew them, it would help heal. It would help yeah. heal that relationship. So this book, could be, you know, in some way, you never know in the future, a way of, of providing and showing that I did care. I was there. I did wipe your cruddy nose and your smelly bum. <laughs> and, and I, I even there sucked for you. the snot out of oh. my face. You know those machines that you used to get with like a tube that you stuck up and Sucker. then you yeah. sucked it? I realized that that I was like, no, I'm going straight to source. Like, this is too much of a faff. And I would just like suck it and spit it. And it was the... You know, oh god think, sorry was that too much do you think I, I wasn't expecting that part I was still on the tube in my head oh, no I ditched that because at four o'clock in the morning when your kid's not sleeping you will do anything anything <laughs> including sucking the mucus out of their nose and honestly if you are a mum currently with a stuffy a kid with a, a baby with a stuffy nose do it I know I know it feels gross but at four o'clock in the morning you'll be like oh my god I remember this idiot on this podcast that said, <laughs> suck it straight from the nose then it works and it works and it's the only way to do it right and that is official expert parental advice <laughs> yeah so i'm such a parent yeah i love it i love it well we'll definitely got to remember this episode for the snot sucking advice <laughs> good to know thank you thanks for the fab chat i just i think normalizing the highs, the lows, the peaks, the troughs, the vulnerability, the need for communication, the openness, the need to get external support if required. I think that's all stuff we really need to be sharing and talking about more. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed this chat and have had a few light bulb moments. Have a think about what your key takeaways are. Please do subscribe, follow or leave a rating or a view to help this podcast reach more people. I really, really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out my website to take my quiz and start ramping up your self-care practices. www.tappingformums.com. 